Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Biden administration responds to cocaine found at the White House. The Secret Service now investigating how the drug ended up in the West Wing. Authorities today charged the suspect in a Philadelphia shooting that left five people dead and the White House responding to recent shootings. The Biden administration responds after a judge limits its contact with social media companies. We'll dive into how those online posts can give a false impression of consensus. Is the U.S. eager to improve relations with China? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen headed to Beijing today, the second visit from a cabinet member in less than a month. And in the Middle East, Israeli forces say they've completed the objectives of their West Bank operation. Israel has now pulled its troops from the region. The Secret Service is investigating the cocaine found in the White House and they're checking visitor logs and cameras. Here's Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responding to a question about the drug today. The president and the first lady and their family were not here this weekend, as you all reported on this, and as you also know that they left on Friday and returned just yesterday. Uh, where, uh, where this was discovered uh, is a heavily traveled area where many White House uh, West Wing, I should be even more specific, uh, West Wing visitors uh, come through uh, this particular area. I just don't have anything more to share. It is under investigation by the Secret Service. This is. Secret Service agents were doing routine rounds when they found suspicious white powder in a common area in the West Wing Sunday evening. The White House was temporarily evacuated and the powder was sent for further testing. The Secret Service confirmed that the test showed the substance was cocaine. President Biden and his family had left for Camp David on Friday and returned to the White House on Tuesday. The substance was found in a cubby hole in a West Wing entry area where visitors place electronics and other belongings before taking tours. Jean-Pierre said Biden has been briefed on the issue and they are confident the Secret Service will get to the bottom of it. Over a dozen people are dead after multiple shootings across the country leading up to the 4th of July. The suspect in the most deadly one was charged with murder this afternoon. The White House on Wednesday afternoon addressing shootings that took place this week. The president wants Republican lawmakers to come to the table and ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, to require safe storage of guns, to end gun manufacturers, immunity from liability, and to enact universal background checks. Lives are at stake here, folks. The U.S. saw multiple shootings this week, leaving more than a dozen dead and almost 60 wounded. The deadliest of those shootings took place in Philadelphia on Monday night. The suspect, 40-year-old Kim Brady Carricker, allegedly killed five men and injured two children, one of them only two years of age. He was charged with five counts of murder, attempted murder, and more on Wednesday afternoon. Here you see pictures of the suspect reportedly shared on Facebook. Reports allege he's a Black Lives Matter supporter who used to wear female clothes at times. Philadelphia's district attorney on Wednesday told CNN it's unclear how the suspect obtained his weapons. Take a look. There is good reason to believe that his purchase of the AR uh, and, and his either manufacture or purchase of a ghost gun, which of course are not sold through official uh, vendors, there's good reason to think that it may have been obtained illegally. 
In a different incident in Louisiana, at least three people were killed and 10 others wounded late Tuesday night. No arrests have been made. In Washington, D.C. on Wednesday morning, a dark SUV drove by a crowd of people opening fire. No one died, but at least nine were wounded, among them a 9- and a 17-year-old. No arrests have been made, but police say the shooting was targeted. Luis Valdez, a member of Gun Owners of America, previously told NTD that guns aren't the problem with shootings. The problem is very simple. We have a mental health crisis where people with debilitating issues that should be seeking treatment have been swept under the rug. And worse, we have a revolving door criminal justice system in which hardened criminals who should be behind bars are given slaps on the wrist and let loose in society. He says that prosecutors in some cities aren't necessarily putting people behind bars in many cases. In an update to that federal censorship case, on Tuesday, a federal judge limited the Biden administration's communications with social media companies. Entities Iris Tau now has the White House's response. The Biden administration is now restricted from calling, emailing, or meeting with social media companies. That's according to a latest order by a Trump-appointed judge named Terry Dowdy, who on Tuesday granted a preliminary injunction blocking federal agencies, including the FBI, the CDC, and the Justice Department, from asking social media companies to delete or suppress content, quote, containing protected free speech. And today, the White House responded by saying that it's against the ruling. We certainly disagree uh, with this decision. We are going to continue to promote responsible actions to protect uh, public health, safety and uh, security when confronted by challenges like a deadly pandemic and foreign attacks on our elections. The ruling comes after the Republican attorney generals of Louisiana and Missouri sued a Biden administration last year, alleging that it has colluded with social media platforms to suppress information and post about COVID-19 policies and election integrity. But while the Biden administration insisted that such communication is needed to help the platforms tackle misinformation, the judge ruled in this ruling quote, evidence produced thus far depicts an almost dystopian scenario, adding that the government seems to have acted like an Orwellian ministry of truth during the COVID-19 pandemic. This could be arguably one of the most important First Amendment cases in modern history. One of the plaintiffs, the Attorney General of Louisiana, told the Epoch Times this week that the latest ruling here could start curtailing government activities on free speech. The things that we uncovered in this case uh, should be both shocking, appalling, uh, and concerning for all Americans. Meanwhile, the latest order here still permits the Biden administration to talk to and communicate with social media companies about national security threats and criminal activities. And it's important to note that the preliminary injunction is not a final ruling, and the Biden administration's Justice Department is expected to appeal it. Reporting from the White House, Aris Howe, Wendy News. To learn more about this ruling and impact of the censorship, we sat down with Dr. Scott Atlas, a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and an Epoch Times contributor. Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. To begin, what is your reaction to this injunction? Well, the injunction is really crucial and late in coming, frankly, because the, the censorship issues particularly during the, the pandemic, were prominent and, and really were very harmful to the public good during 2020. 
the the reason the injunction uh, was was issued was because there's overt evidence of the government colluding with the media companies, and that seems to me to be an overt violation of the law. We have to remember that this kind of uh, censorship of information uh, that was very harmful to the public good was done during 2020 by the tech companies alone uh, during uh, the most important decisions about lockdowns, uh, deciding what truth was instead of fulfilling the role of the media in a free society, which is to inform the public and let the public, uh, you know, come to their own conclusions. And Dr. Alice, expanding on that, you were part of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. You felt firsthand the censoring effects of big tech. How does this case play into the public's ability to view those differing opinions or debates online? Well, I think it's really uh, critical, first of all, in a general sense, you know, freedom of speech uh, is, is really the essential first and foremost freedom uh, in a free country, because everything stems from that. But secondly, it, it illustrates what was done uh, in, in 2020 and 2021 and then 2022, and even now today, which is the use of propaganda. Part of uh, swaying the public in, in this pandemic was done by suppressing information, the free exchange of ideas, and it was also used to vilify opposing views, to demonize opposing views, and to give the uh, the censorship gave the false impression of a of a consensus somehow that existed, which was really uh, frankly wrong. There was no neither a consensus. In fact, the people that were pushing the consensus about things like vaccines stopping the spread of infection, and it was a, quote, pandemic of the unvaccinated, and all the other things, including that masks worked and people were dangerous if they disagreed with these things, that is propaganda reminiscent of some of the most heinous regimes in modern history, including current countries that we uh we really uh, oppose tremendously in terms of the restriction of freedoms like communist China and even places like North Korea. The government uh, really broke all standards by, by colluding with tech to suppress speech. Instead of giving the public more information like a free society demands and letting the public be persuaded by the data. And Dr. Atlas, we are heading into election season, and these are becoming very crucial topics. And it seems we're seeing a rise in terms of misinformation labels and AI-generated content. Where do we go here in terms of free speech? Well, the solution to misinformation is more information. The solution to uh, so-called dangerous information is to really let the public have all the information, all the facts. Once you have a government or, or the media picking and choosing what they think are facts, first of all, they were wrong in the pandemic about so many things that they said were correct. But, but secondly, once it's obvious, and it is very obvious that freedom of information was suppressed, you lose trust in those institutions. The CDC has undermined itself particularly with the help of people that were leading the guidance on public health with COVID, like doctors Fauci, Burks, et cetera, in collusion with uh, many people even after they left uh, the Trump administration. Under the Biden administration, we now have a loss of trust, and I think that's, that's worse. They created the problem. We need to restore 
all of the essential freedoms this is country was founded on and it was founded by the way on limiting the power of the government specifically and in this this injunction uh, recognizes the overreach of government to the point of being uh, really illegally restricting civil liberties particularly freedom of speech dr. Scott Atlas thank you so much for your time thank you for having me it appears the Biden administration is eager to patch up relations with China. Today, sending the second cabinet member in less than a month's time to meet with Chinese Communist Party officials. Entity's Melina Weiskup has the story. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is visiting China for the next few days. Yellen is trying to work out economic relations between the two largest economies in the world. This trip comes amid new tensions between Beijing and Washington over export controls. National Foreign Trade Council President Jake Colvin described the trip as one that's expected to help define a quote-unquote new normal. Yellen's trip is part of the Biden administration's plan to deepen communications with China, but some doubt its effectiveness. Here's what Congressman Mike Gallagher, who is the chairman of the Select China Committee in the House, told me just ahead of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to China just a few weeks ago. The attempts by the administration to revive engagement after it's failed for 20 years, I just don't know what that achieves other than to force us to slow walk certain defensive actions, i.e. sanctions on key CCP officials related to the ongoing genocide. We have to figure out a way to reclaim our economic independence, to stop funding our own destruction, and to take the golden blindfolds off when it comes to the risks of doing business with Beijing, which we've seen again for 20 years. But Yellen is expected to tell her Chinese counterparts that the U.S. does not intend to decouple the two economies. But this is tricky because the U.S. still intends to protect human rights and protect national security. And although Yellen is mainly meant to focus on economic relations, she's expected to also warn CCP officials of the consequences they face if they do provide lethal aid to Russia. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Now turning our attention to former President Trump's classified documents case, a federal judge in Florida has ordered more search warrant information to be unsealed. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart today ordered portions of the search warrant affidavit that led to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago to be made public. Media organizations had asked the judge to unseal the entire affidavit, but the judge denied this request. He said the Justice Department wants parts to remain sealed to, quote, comply with grand jury secrecy rules and to protect investigative sources and methods. It is unclear when and how the unsealed parts of the affidavit will be made public. Trump was charged with 37 counts in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. He has pleaded not guilty to all of them. In a major development in the Middle East, the Israeli military says it's completed its intense military operation in the West Bank. And the Israeli military has now withdrawn all troops. NDD's Jason Perry brings us the latest. 
On Wednesday, the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, officially ended their military operation in the Janine refugee camp in the West Bank. The IDF said they had achieved their objectives in neutralizing terrorist infrastructure, which included weapons caches and terrorist hideouts. The two-day Israeli mission in Janine began with intense drone strikes, followed by over a thousand troops sweeping through specific locations. Twelve Palestinians and one Israeli soldier were killed during the operation. On Tuesday, a Hamas terrorist drove a car into a crowd of people in Tel Aviv, Israel, and stabbed multiple people. The terrorist injured eight people and was ultimately killed by an armed bystander. The following day, Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip fired rockets towards Israel, but the Israeli defense systems intercepted them. In response, the IDF carried out airstrikes on multiple Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip. Israel's defense minister said this. We reach out to everyone for peace and a life of partnership. On the other hand, those who try to harm the children and citizens of Israel will meet the iron wall and the strength of the IDF. I spoke with geopolitical strategist Alp Savim Lesoy to get his take on it. Can you maybe explain a little bit about this refugee camp and why Israel may have thought there were terrorists in this camp? Well, I think there were certainly terrorists in this camp. I mean, the camp itself had become a munitions depot for, for everything from Hamas to proxy organizations propped up by Iran. So all that was occurring was the IDF was ensuring the national security of Israel, just as it's the right of any country to do so. And I also asked him about the Palestinian Authority leaders who were just confronted by thousands of Palestinians who told the leaders to get out. Well, Jason, the Palestinian leadership has not exhibited any leadership. They have no control over the region. They have no control over northern Samaria, nor in terms of Jenin. Hence, when we look at it from the perspective of those that are living there, I think they're quite right to be, to be annoyed and, and to be in a position where they're having to voice their concerns to a so-called leadership that is non-existent. Savim Lasoy added that the operation has provided security for Israelis and Palestinians alike. And he expects to see more operations like this to not only secure Israel, but the region at large. Jason Perry, NTD News. The U.S. Navy says it used warships to successfully stop Iranian vessels from seizing two oil tankers near the Strait of Hormuz. The strait separates Iran from the Arabian Peninsula. The Navy also said the Iranian vessels fired shots at one of the oil tankers while trying to seize it. No damage or casualties were confirmed. The U.S. Navy added that the tankers were lawfully transiting international waters. One of the tankers was managed by oil giant Chevron and carried the Bahamas flag. The company said all crew members on board are safe. The other tanker carried the Marshall Islands flag. The Iranian regime has not yet commented on the allegations. Since 2019, there has been a series of attacks on shipping in strategic Gulf waters at times of tension between the U.S. and Iran. Navy officials said Iran has harassed, attacked or interfered with about 15 internationally flagged merchant vessels over the past two years or so. Now turning our attention to Russia, the Kremlin said it's open to talks with the U.S. over a potential prisoner swap. It could involve detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovitz. 
Russia yesterday held the door open for contacts with the U.S., but said such talks must be held out of the public eye. Gerskovich has been held behind bars in Moscow since March on charges of espionage. He was arrested while on a reporting trip to Russia. The Biden administration has called this a wrongful detention. The U.S. ambassador to Russia on Monday was allowed to visit Gerskovich for the first time since April. The Russian man that could be involved in the prisoner swap is Vladimir Dunayev. He's currently being held in Ohio on cybercrime charges. He was arrested and extradited from South Korea in 2021. The White House press secretary was asked about the potential prisoner swap today and said that the White House has no news to share. Coming up, the Japanese government plans to release nuclear wastewater into the Pacific. How different countries are responding. And a Twitter competitor app is being released tomorrow. Does Musk's newly acquired platform stand a chance? More in just a moment here on NTD. Welcome back. In Japan, the UN's nuclear watchdog has cleared the way for the Japanese government's plan to release radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. But some nearby nations are not too happy about it. Entity's Arlene Richards reports. In March 2011, the Tohoku tsunami and earthquake caused an accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station in Japan. Over the years, the Japanese government has pumped large amounts of water into the reactors in order to cool them, resulting in an accumulation of 1.33 million cubic meters of radioactive wastewater on the site. In 2021, the government announced its plans to release the water gradually into the Pacific Ocean. And now the International Atomic Energy Agency, the United Nations nuclear watchdog, cleared the way on Tuesday. In a report, the IAEA concluded that the government's filtration system, which uses chemicals to remove radionuclides from the contaminated water, was within international safety standards. Chief of the IAEA, Rafael Grassi, surveyed the site Wednesday and vouched for the safety of the plan. Uh, we say that there would be, if any, the effects would be negligible. Negligible is practically irrelevant. The levels are, are uh, so far below the approved um, standards, internationally speaking, uh, there wouldn't be any such, any such effect. But some neighboring nations are not convinced, including the Chinese regime. Their report cannot greenlight Japan's ocean discharge decision and cannot prove that the decision is the only safest or most reliable option. We urge Japan to be responsible to humanity and future generations and stop the ocean discharge plan. South Korean officials are making their own assessment of Japan's wastewater discharge plan. At a news conference earlier today, a vice ministerial official said this. Basically, the government's fundamental position has been to respect decisions made by the International Atomic Energy Agency, as it's an internationally recognized organization. That remains our position this time as well. Local fishing organizations in Japan also oppose the plan because they fear it will damage their reputation even if their catch isn't contaminated. 
Some Pacific Island nations also have safety concerns. The IAEA chief is scheduled to visit South Korea and the Pacific Islands. And a river running through Ikoma City in western Japan turned bright green this morning concerning local residents. Video posted on social media shows the Tatsuta River turned a lime green color. It was posted by a local resident who was alarmed by the site while walking her dog. Local media reports say various concerns about the color have been raised by locals in the neighborhood. Public broadcaster NHK says there are no irritating smells despite the abnormal color. And local officials found the water to be non-toxic after conducting a sample test. The Ikoma City Hall said the cause of the colored water is still being investigated and asked farmers not to use it for agricultural purposes until the water's safety can be confirmed. And back to the U.S., the California Reparations Task Force has proposed over 100 recommendations. All are aimed at benefiting black Americans who are descended from slaves. Let's take a look at some of the more prominent proposals. After two years, the California Reparations Task Force proposed 100 recommendations in a document over 1,000 pages. Among them is a call to eliminate child support debt for black residents. They claim there is a larger percentage of black Californians who owe child support debt than their proportion of the state's population. They also claim that 10% interest hinders them from paying to go to school, finding jobs, and housing. Another item on their recommendations list is banning police from public disorder offenses like urinating in public. The group claims law enforcement should ignore low-level nonviolent offenses since most of the people who commit them are homeless or have mental health issues. In addition, the task force recommends the state pay over $225 billion in damages for alleged incarceration-related racism. They believe black California residents who were victims of war on drugs since 1970 should be compensated for health harms dating back to the 1850s, housing discrimination, and mass incarceration. A marathon negotiating session between UPS and the Teamsters Union ended early Wednesday without a deal to avoid a strike. Both sides accused the other of walking away from the table. The issue is money. The union hasn't publicly disclosed how big of a pay increase it wants for drivers. But it points to record UPS profits over the past five years and executives earning multi-million dollar salaries as reasons the drivers should be better compensated. The two sides have already agreed on several other issues, like putting air conditioning in delivery vehicles. But the clock is ticking. The current contract expires at the end of the month which means 340,000 UPS workers could go on strike August 1st. Facebook parent Meta plans to release a new Twitter rival app tomorrow called Threads. It will allow users to retain followers from photo-sharing platform Instagram. It's basically Instagram's text-based conversation app. Will Meta's new app pose a threat to Musk's Twitter? NTD Business's Don Ma speaks to a social media expert. And joining me here is Andrew Salapak, social media professor at the University of Florida. So the new meta app, Threads, is expected to be released tomorrow. It's supposed to be a Twitter rival. Do you think it has the potential to be a so-called Twitter killer? 
I mean, I think a lot of people are overhyping the idea of it being a Twitter killer because we've seen this before with Mastodon, with Blue Sky, with True Social, with Parler. Everything's supposed to be a Twitter killer. Now, the difference is that those companies didn't have the financials that Meta does. But at the end of the day, you're still asking people to kind of make a huge switch, to go from the thing they're comfortable with to something completely new. And with the rare exception of TikTok, that often doesn't happen. So let me ask you this. Instagram has around 2 billion users compared to about 250 million of Twitter. So it's about 10 times bigger already. If, if my math is correct, if 1 in 10 Instagram users tries threads, it will overtake Twitter. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will use threads. Now, it depends on what they use it for, how often they're using it. You know, a lot of people are on Instagram not because they're trying to necessarily engage in news, conversations, discussions about important topics. That's what Twitter is for. Twitter is this platform that's very much a one-to-many. You know, you put out a tweet, it's to the world. Instagram, most people are only putting out messages to people they know. They're putting it out to a select group. They know it's not going to go viral. It's going to get a lot of users, but, you know, at the same time, Google Plus did too, and no one uses that anymore for obvious reasons. And I think this fits into the, the conversation as well. What do you think of Twitter's new post viewing limit? I don't like it, <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, I, I do post to Twitter, I'm active on Twitter, but a lot of what I use Twitter for myself is to just kind of see what's going on in the world. And when you limit how many tweets a person can see in a day, it takes away kind of the big value of the platform for a lot of people. I understand that it's being used for data scraping and that's the argument being made by Musk and Twitter right now. And there is some logic to that. But I think there's a bit of kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face because this is now being used as a way to attack Twitter and draw people over to this new platform at the exact time when you don't want that to happen. And the other question I have is, does it have to be a zero-sum game, right? In order for threads to succeed, does Twitter have to lose? A little bit. And you, I say that because, you know, if you look at what Facebook and again, Meta has tried to do over the years is they've never really, they haven't really been innovative in over a decade. When they put out the news feed, that was basically one of the last times they've been innovative. Otherwise, they've been either been buying other companies or recreating other companies. And sometimes they're very successful. When they added stories, it kind of has killed off Snapchat. But in adding reels, they really didn't do anything to TikTok. So, you know, if we just look at past history, could this be the Snapchat killer or will it be kind of a failure compared to TikTok? I think it will probably fall somewhere in between. People will use it. I think people will try it for a couple days and then kind of go back to the old familiar. We may see kind of a red Twitter and a blue threads where we're kind of dividing up by political allegiance, political alliance. And that's dangerous because now we're even platform-wise, putting ourselves into kind of echo chambers and filter bubbles. Do you think that's the main attraction of Threads, its political orientation? I mean, in your opinion, why would people use Threads over Twitter? I, I honestly think that could be where Threads is going to be able to potentially succeed, is to pull those people who say, well, Elon Musk and Twitter is now this right-wing platform. And that's really where the, the sort of the danger comes of these platforms separating us politically rather than us being able to engage with others who may have a differing opinion. All right. Thank you so much today, Andrew. Pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. In an online discussion, Twitter owner Elon Musk stated his support for limiting the right to vote to people who have kids, saying others don't have as much of a stake in the future. 
The Twitter discussion was about the spread of Islam in France and was blaming it on the white female vote. Musk has nine living children. He has previously said he is doing his part to fight underpopulation. He gave a warning in April about the low birth rate in responding to a Twitter post about an estimate that Social Security will run out of funds earlier than expected. He has previously stated that population collapse is a bigger threat to civilization than global warming. Singer-songwriter Taylor Swift seems close to hitting a world record. Her era's tour is nearing a whopping $1 billion in ticket sales. Meanwhile, many of Swift's contemporaries aren't even in the top 10. So why is Taylor Swift so much more successful than her competition? NTD's Faye Quarter asks some experts. Taylor Swift's Eras Tour may be close to hitting a world record. With 106 tour dates in total, it's estimated it could make well over a billion dollars. This would make it the most financially successful tour of all time. In comparison, many of her contemporaries are grossing in the low hundreds of millions and tens of millions. The difference is that Taylor has such a genuine personality and connection with her fans. It doesn't feel like, oh, I'm, you know, you should be so lucky to get this peek into my life. It feels like she genuinely wants to authentically have that deep connection. PR and marketing expert Aquila Mendez-Valdez says Swift gives her fans a very in-depth look at her life, which people really appreciate. This makes her feel like a friend. She says Swift is also relatively family-friendly, unlike many of her contemporaries. Mendez Valdez brought her daughters to a Swift performance in Dallas, and she says she was perfectly comfortable with her daughters there. She's curated this image and narrative of herself that transcends the music in itself. Name an act where you've been able to grow alongside them from her first album to the most recent album. Fans connect with her that way. Mike Pio Roda has worked with many Billboard charting artists by connecting them with concert promoters. He says people have grown to love the narrative she's created through her songs and other mediums, all starting from her first album in 2006 called Taylor Swift. And another factor, the clues. She'll hide clues in her clothes and clues in lyrics and things like that. That is genius marketing. Hiding clues gives us a reason to stay tuned. We are always looking for things in her music, and that keeps us there. Marketing expert Amanda Huddy says Swift has been doing this from very early on in her career. She believes this has contributed significantly to Swift's success. There are things like the colors on her nails that represent the different eras. Um, you know, when she started the, the eras tour, um, she had different letters on her shirt that were colored differently. And they did add up to patterns. So we're constantly finding new things to like pick up on and theorize and, and things like that. The eras tour is Swift's sixth tour. It's called the eras tour because it's supposed to be a journey through all her musical eras. The tour is ongoing through August 2024. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, people are leaving the cities for a self-sufficient lifestyle in the country. Some call it homesteading. And as reports of shark attacks surge, an alert beachgoer spots a shark swimming off the coast during the holiday. That story and more when we return on NTD News.
Welcome back. Well-known organic farmer Joel Saladin says we're seeing a homesteading tsunami. That is an uptick in self-sufficient living, including practices like growing and preserving your own food and generating your own energy sources. To learn about this blossoming trend, we spoke with Epoch Times journalist Jeff Lauterbach and Melissa Renee, a homesteader herself. Melissa Renee and Jeff Lauterbach, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Absolutely. Melissa, homesteading might be an unfamiliar term to some of our audience, and I know you're a homesteader. Maybe you can start by explaining what that term means for us. I think that term is very vague and open, and that's what's so wonderful about it, because homesteading is a mindset. It is the act of being, um, you know, more practical in your choices, living a simple life, uh, believing in self-sustainability and self-independence and your food and your home and making that home your priority. And so how does that play out for you? How do you homestead? Well, I started in the city, actually. Um, I grew up in a homestead um, family. However, uh, whenever I came into Cincinnati, uh, we, we didn't have a lot of land. And so that looked like a couple of pots in my backyard where I grew some peppers and tomatoes. Um, we visited local farmers markets and I bought in bulk and we preserved to be able to have those those foods that could carry us through the winter and for any type of an emergency. Uh, now I am living in Southeast Amish country in Ohio and it's a whole different uh, lifestyle for me now. So, you know, it's a process, but um, it's a trial and error process. I'm growing my homestead every day from the ground up. There's a lot of uh, complications that come into that whenever you're starting out, but uh, we're, we're now, we've taken our homestead from city lifestyle to country lifestyle. Thank you for that explanation, Melissa. Jeff, let's turn to you. Well-known organic farmer Joel Salatin says we're seeing a homesteading tsunami. Can you explain why he said that? What's behind this tsunami? Yeah, I documented that in the first story I did on the Food Independence Summit last week. And his, uh, his explanation is that because, you know, we're several generations removed from when people commonly farmed or produced their own food. And in recent years, for a variety of reasons, people have taken back to wanting to produce their own food, whether it's, uh, you know, growing a tomato plant or doing something more extensive with produce and chickens and goats. And so at all levels, we're starting to see that. And that's his reasoning is people are having a call to go from the city to the country, but even the people who stay in the city are uh, at least doing something to sustain themselves more. And I was reading your article in the Epoch Times about this topic. You mentioned how uh, the pandemic played a role in the resurgence of homesteading. Can you talk about that a little? Well, that's one aspect. I think, um, you know, during, uh, when, with the onset of COVID, we started seeing, um, shelves that are bare, uh, supply chain issues, people could no longer go to the store like they used to, or they saw that it could be easily disrupted. And it's not really limited to the COVID pandemic. It's just in general, people are starting to see that it's best to be able to produce their own food for when there's supply shortages, but also in the long run, you save money when you, uh, buy buy food, learn how to can and preserve. So, uh, yeah, the homesteading tsunami is at all levels. 
And Melissa, what do you hope the future, maybe the next 20 years of your homesteading lifestyle will be like? Well, every day I learn something new. Um, I live right next to an Amish community in Southeast Ohio, and uh, they are such a great community to live, live next to because they are so uh, self-sustainable themselves, and they support me even whenever I don't know exactly what I'm doing. So every year we're learning new things, and that's the goal, you know, over the next five years to add something new each year to the homestead. This year it was uh, complicated because I live on homestead land that had not been turned over for a hundred years. So I came in with the expectation that I would be able to turn this land and grow a garden in my in my back pasture. And the land is not fertile. It's going to take cover crop, a lot of soil amendments just to get to the point that I can put seed to ground. So we're doing raised beds, we're doing a lot of aeroponic gardening and, and just trying to think outside of the box of what we can do this year that also benefits the homestead and then keeping in mind how we're gonna grow that and what that looks like, that vision looks like for next year. Eventually we're gonna have uh, chickens and meat birds. And um, the goal for my family we're super excited about is uh, a family dairy cow on our back pasture. It sounds like a bright future. Well, Melissa Renee and Jeff Lauterbach, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. This 4th of July, swimmers at Navarre Beach in Florida's Panhandle were in for a surprise. An alert beachgoers spotted a shark swimming off the coast. Phone video shows the telltale fin and outline of the shark. As some swimmers took notice and headed for the safety of the beach, while others remained in the surf. The shark appeared again briefly on the video and then appeared to move on. A rash of shark attacks have been reported this summer, but nothing more than average. According to the website Tracking Sharks, through early June, at least 16 such attacks were reported in the U.S., nine of them in Florida. None were fatal. July 4th is a great time for barbecue with friends, but July 5th is the day for Loao. It's National Hawaii Day. Today is the time to celebrate our 50th state. NationalDayCalendar.com honors each state in the order in which they entered the union. Hawaii is America's 50th state and officially achieved statehood on August 21, 1959. The Aloha State is honored every year on July 5th. Hawaii was a key location for U.S. military and strategic interests well before becoming a state. The Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor was the event that pulled America into World War II. Coming up, it's day three at Wimbledon with men's favorite Novak Djokovic in action. We'll have his results and a look at a very capable possible future opponent. And Southern California's Ronald Reagan Library is honoring the first female astronaut with a new statue. The space traveler is described as inspirational and someone who always reached for the stars. These stories and more when we come back. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on day three at Wimbledon. That's right, Tiff. Second-seeded Novak Djokovic rolled to a straight-sets win today over unseeded Jordan Thompson, his 30th straight win at the All-England Club. 
The winner advances Djokovic to the third round, where he could possibly play three-time Grand Slam champion Stan Wawrinka. The two have a bit of a history as Wawrinka topped Djokovic in the finals of the U.S. Open in 2016, as well as the French Open finals the year before. Elsewhere at the All England Club, fifth-seeded Stefanos Tsitsipas topped Dominic Thiem in a five-set thriller 3-6-7-6-6-2-6-7-7-6 in a first-round match that lasted nearly four hours. And on the women's side, top-seeded and number one-ranked Iga Fiatek rolled to a straight-sets win to advance to the third round. Meanwhile, 25th-ranked American Madison Keys won her first-round matchup today in a straight-sets victory. And in baseball news, LA Angels star Mike Trout is out for an undisclosed amount of time with a wrist injury suffered Monday night. But just hours after he was placed on the injured list, teammate Shohei Otani exited Tuesday's game with a blister on his pitching hand. The two-way star Otani pitched five innings, but was promptly removed after giving up back-to-back -back home runs in the sixth in an 8-5 loss to San Diego. Otani, who was selected for next week's All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a hitter, said he'll likely not pitch in the exhibition because of the blister. Trout, meanwhile, will miss the game. No word yet on who his replacement will be. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, plenty more baseball. 14 games on, including the high-priced New York Mets, who are finally showing a little life, having won three in a row. They play at the Arizona Diamondbacks. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. And the Ronald Reagan Library is known for honoring a variety of American heroes. And they've done it again by paying tribute to a space traveler. This pioneer was part of NASA's 1978 class of astronaut candidates who dreamed big and always reached for the stars. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more from Southern California's Simi Valley. On Tuesday, the Ronald Reagan Library honored NASA astronaut Sally Ride. Ride made history more than 40 years ago on June 18, 1983, when she became the first American woman to fly in space aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger's STS-7 mission along with four male crewmates. Sally Ride's sister, Bear Ride, tells us that her older sibling was always academically inclined. She was always uh, very serious about her studies and enjoyed, um, you know, enjoyed science. She loved science and always was full of adventure. When she graduated from uh, college, she got her PhD in astrophysics and then became an astronaut. So her life was really quite fulfilling in that way. And now we're all, the family is so proud to be here. Before becoming a spacewoman, Ride was passionate about sports. When she was younger, she was an excellent tennis player. She was a nationally ranked tennis player. Uh, and she was always very, very athletic. Um, she used to play baseball with the kids on the street like we used to do here. And uh, they never really believed that she was going to be very good because she was a girl, but she turned out to be the best. Stephen Barber had the chance to honor one of his heroes by creating the Sally Ride Monument. He did this in part to show that everyone who puts in the effort can achieve their dreams, goals, and aspirations. Sally epitomizes what anybody can do. If you have a dream and you wake up every morning and you swing the bat and, you ha and you're focused on that dream, in America you cannot fail. You know, and she is the living spirit of that kind of dream. So now young women for the first time are going to see a monument that looks like them. 
of a woman reaching to the stars, because only 1% of the monuments in America represent female achievement, and we need to change that. Former NASA Administrator Charles Bolden said, quote, Sally Ride broke barriers with grace and professionalism and literally changed the face of America's space program. Christina Corona, NTD News, Simi Valley. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.